So last September, I had the opportunity with a group of other men to have what was literally the most intense experience of my life. Perhaps even more intense than being in the delivery room when your kids are being born. Like, you know, like, that's intense, right? This may even be a notch past that. I, you know, not, well, for the, for the husband, not for the wife, I would imagine. So we had the opportunity to meet the king of Swaziland. All right, King Maswati III. National Geographic has done a great write-up about him. I would encourage you to read it. You can Google it and find it, find it easily. But we had the opportunity to go and to meet King Maswati. He is the last absolute monarch on the entire continent of Africa. Now, in preparation for us to go, when we arrive, we arrive at this place where we're going to a golf tournament that is sponsored by the king at the Royal Golf Club, and we're going to go. So we go to, we get there before he arrives, and in our arrival, we're brought into what is essentially like the clubhouse or like the 19th hole kind of place, okay? And while we're there, all of a sudden, Jeffrey, the pastor that we're with, starts pointing people out. And you'll say, okay, that's a parliamentary member. That's a parli par parliamentary member. That's the, that's the speaker of parliamentary. Um, that, 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 that's the uh, minister of defense. That's the ambassador to South Africa. And so, so we're in there, and like, we're literally with a who's who of like the Swazi high life, right? Well, the, this one older gentleman comes in, he's got a, a silver beard, and you can tell like everybody is just kind of awestruck, and, he, and I'm just happen to be standing right beside the door as he walks in, and he reaches out his hand, and so I shake his hand, and he begins to talk, and he kind of has this like Yoda way about him. You ever talk to somebody like that, you know, like he only speaks in Proverbs kind of thing. And, uh, and so I, I go over and Jeffrey says, that's the king's oldest brother. Like, that's the prince. And I'm like, okay, you know, just hanging out with the prince. No big deal, right? So, so we're all waiting in this area together on the king's arrival. And outside, they have laid out a red carpet every single place that the king's feet are to touch. That his feet are not supposed to be on the same dirt that mine and your feet walk on. And so literally every single place that the king is charted to go, they have rolled out a red carpet. And so there is this maze of red carpentry. They could have used Dell, I'm sure, to kind of help them out laying out this grand scheme, right? When all of a sudden, you begins to stir in that room, right? And you can begin to sense that, that something's going down. Now outside, it's pouring down rain. I mean pouring down rain. But when Word begins to spread that his arrival is imminent. It didn't matter how hard it was raining. It didn't matter what was going down. And look, I ain't judging nobody else there because I felt the same way. It was time to go outside, right? And so we all run outside and, and we're getting flooded. I mean, just getting rained on and getting soaking wet. And then all of a sudden this entourage of, of black BMW SUVs shows up. And I'm thinking this is the king, right? It ain't the king. This is one of the king's 15, 15 wives. And she has shown up ahead of him. And so they get her out, and they've got the guy there waiting with the umbrella. And he walks with her, and she's on the red carpet. And, and they walk with her and take her to her place. And so then the, the, the whole kind of entourage of, of BMWs heads off. 
And then off in the distance, you begin to hear this man shouting, And you know, it's faint at first, and then it gets louder and louder and louder. And this guy's walking, and he's walking just right up the middle of the road. There ain't nobody around him. And everywhere that he's walking, he's And I look at Jeffrey and say, what in the world is that guy doing? And he says that what he was doing is he was, he was shouting the praises of the king. That he was walking in front of the king to announce the king. And an announcement of the king, he was announcing all of the great accomplishments of King Mizwati's reign, talking out loud as loudly as he could in a form of, of, of worship so that the whole crowd would know what a great presence they were about to enter. So that the entire crowd would realize what, what an honor and what an opportunity it would be to be in the presence of a man so great as King Mazwadi. And then all of a sudden, this huge line of black uh, BMW SUV starts, starts rolling up in there. And then right, right almost at the end of the line, there is this fluorescent turquoise blue. I mean, it stands out. It is just like vibrant, customized color comes up, and that's the car of the king. It's got the flags there, and when the king's car comes into view, the military band begins to play the national anthem of Swaziland. The crowd begins to scream and shout. Servants are there. They open the door. They hold, the, they hold the, the umbrella. They begin to walk with him down the red carpet. And everywhere that he goes, people are shouting praises for him. The band is playing and playing and playing. And I remember just sitting there and just thinking, I've never seen anything like this before. I've, I've never been a part of an experience this way before. We don't get what it means to welcome a king. We don't get what it means to see and be in the presence of a man so highly revered as that. This morning in our text, we come to a scene that is in many ways just like that one. But in the most important ways, profoundly different. We come to a scene in which the king, Jesus, is coming into Judea, having descended from Galilee, as he will make his ascension toward the throne of the cross as we enter into the very final week of his life. It is literally the most important week in all of human history. The gospel writers believed it so, devoting the most, the, the most significant portions of their text to this final seven days of his life. Matthew alone devotes a quarter of his gospel to these seven days. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21 as we come back to Matthew. Just so you know, we're going to finish this next year. I've got it mapped out. About next Easter, Matthew's going to be finito. Won't that be exciting? Matthew chapter 21. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 11. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? 
Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, God's word says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, the humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd says, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So throughout Jesus' ministry, we've encountered something that is a bit odd. If you'll think back to passages like in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus heals a leper, okay? So literally you have a man who is covered in sores over the entirety of his body. He is outcast from society. He is condemned to death, essentially. And Jesus speaks, makes him well. And do you know what Jesus says to him? Don't say anything. Go and be quiet about it. Don't, don't, don't whisper a word of this to your crew. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, all right, Jesus, you could use a bit of a marketer here. You, you could use some, some marketing advantages here. Like, like, this is straight gold, Jesus. Like, if you're trying to, to, to build a big church, you're trying to start a great movement, you're trying to get a buzz going in the community, man, you just healed a leper, all right? We can use that. We can use that to our advantage. Like, I can see billboards, I can see posters, I can see YouTube clips. Like, we can use this. We can flood social media, and Jesus, we can get the word out. But Jesus is always hushing people. Hasn't that always struck you as odd? So why is it that Jesus is constantly tell, doing these miraculous works, doing these great things, and then telling people to be quiet? You see, Jesus had to do, accomplish specific things at, specific time, at a specific point in time. That Jesus came to live his life and he came to live at a specific point in time to do specific things during that time at a specific point. Uh, and, and to live a specific number of years while he was here. That Jesus, yes, he came to die, but he didn't just come to die. That Jesus also came to live and in his life and in his ministry to fulfill certain prophecies and to accomplish certain good, to live a life of holiness and to live a life of sinlessness, to live a life that, that, was, that would in every way identify with us and to know our struggle and to know our difficulties. And what Jesus understood is that the conversation about him, though always controversial from the beginning of his ministry, would have to be tempered. 
Because if it was not tempered, if in the very beginning he stood out and he said, I am the Messiah, I am the King of the Jews, I am the one that was promised in the line of David, and I have come to replace the government, he would have immediately provoked violence against himself, and he would have been taken to the cross immediately. So Jesus tempered the conversation about himself so that he could accomplish all of the things that the Father had laid out for him to accomplish and the time that the Father had for him to accomplish him. But the time of provocation has come upon us. The time has come for the Son of Man to lay down his life. The time has come for Jesus to announce his identity in full. And in announcing his identity in full, he would provoke his own slaughter. The slaughter that would be for you and for me. So as he comes into Judea from Galilee, he is no longer concerned with silence. He is no longer concerned with staying in the background. He is no longer concerned with tempering the conversation. No, he has come to announce his arrival as the messianic king, to announce his arrival as the one that God has sent. He announces this in a number of ways. What's unique especially is if we were to take this particular passage of text and we were to identify the second most important character in it, it would be a donkey, right? It would be a donkey. The second time in the whole Bible in which you can say the, mo the second most important part person in the passage is a donkey. That means God can use you too, doesn't it? God can even use me because God can use the foal of a donkey. So why is it that a donkey plays such a key role in our text? See, Jesus had been walking everywhere that he went. Everywhere that Jesus went, he walked. As a matter of fact, if you don't count the, the being in Mary's womb and riding a donkey into Bethlehem, this is the only time we see in the entirety of the Gospels Jesus riding anything anywhere. Jesus was a walker. Jesus was a man that lived in hardship. Jesus was a man that lived a working class life, an impoverished life, a hard life, a difficult life. Everywhere he and his disciples went, they walked there. They weren't riding in chariots. They weren't riding in turquoise BMWs. They were walking the places that they went. And on this particular occasion, they've already been making the 25-mile journey from Galilee. And they've come into Judea. And they only have a mile left in the journey. So why get a donkey now? Like, if I'm Jesus, I want a donkey in Galilee, right? Maybe even in Samaria. Like, I want a donkey when I'm further out. I want to I get a donkey, get some water, get some hay, and cruise into Jerusalem from there. After all, I'm going to lay down my life for the world. They can give me a donkey, right? But Jesus waits for the final mile of the trek. See, Jesus wasn't asking for a donkey because Jesus had rolled his ankle, okay? Jesus wasn't asking for a donkey because he lacked stamina or endurance or he was tired. Jesus was asking for a donkey because he, was, he would use the donkey to make his announcement, to announce his arrival. See, there were three pilgrimage, uh, there were three pilgrim, pilgrimage feasts, three pilgrimage celebrations in the life of the Jews. 
And the most significant of these celebrations was the Passover. And Jesus is coming into Judea at the time of the Passover. And so he is making this journey with literally thousands of Galileans with him. They're all going at the same time. So Jesus would have been one in the crowd of tens of thousands that would have been beside him. And practically no one from Galilee would have afforded a donkey or ridden a donkey. All of them would have been pedestrians. So it, would, it is a flock, a huge herd of people. You can, you, you can think, the way I like to think of uh, Judea and Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, it's like Calhoun County during, during race weekend, you know? Like, like the, the population swells. You get some out-of-towners, if you know what I mean, right? Like, like, you go to the Oxford Walmart during race weekend, it's just a different scene, isn't it? Like, it's just a different scene. Like, you, 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 go, to, you, you go to Longhorn during race weekend, it's just a different scene. And so the Judeans, they kind of viewed the Galileans this way. They kind of, they viewed the Passover this way. Certainly, it was a reverent time of worship for them. Certainly, it was an important time of their faith for them. But it brought in kind of some riffraff. The Galileans were seen kind of as, as second class, as second tier Jews, as, as being, being poorer and, and less important than they were. And so you have all of these out-of-towners and they're, they're coming into town and they're, they're walking together. And so Jesus asks for a donkey. And in asking for a donkey, the, what happens is, is when he sits on the donkey, he sits above everyone else. Do you see the scene? You're, you're, in a, you're in a crowd of people, and you have one man sitting up on a donkey. He's in the middle of his own people. Make sure that you notice in verse 11, it says, Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. He's not referred to like that very often. But in this text, it's important because he is being identified with the Galileans that are coming in for the Passover. And so he's sitting on a donkey in the midst of this great multitude of people, and yet he is sitting above them all. No, Jesus is making a royal entrance, you see. Jesus is coming into Judea and into Jerusalem as the king of the Galileans would. He is coming in as one of royalty, but not just any royalty. Because it wasn't just any donkey, was it? No, Matthew goes to great pains to make sure that we see that this wasn't just any donkey. No, this was expected. This was predicted. This was prophesied. That Jesus wasn't just coming in as any old king. Jesus was coming in as the Messiah king, as the messianic king, as the long-awaited king, as the king in the line of the throne of David. That as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, he wasn't coming as some foreign king from Galilee. Instead, he was coming into Jerusalem to his rightful throne. Listen to what it says in verse 4. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This was universally accepted by Jewish people as being a messianic prophecy. They would have immediately understood the imagery of what Jesus was doing. That Jesus wasn't just living out a parable. Jesus wasn't just acting out some royal fantasy. That Jesus was identifying himself as the man which was spoke about in Zechariah chapter 9. Something that had been prophesied 500 years before that week. 
So as Jesus rides this donkey into Judea, as he rides this donkey into Jerusalem, he is announcing in no uncertain terms, in no unclear terms, unequivocally, I am the son of David. Daughters of Zion, your king has arrived. Now, here's what I think is really cool. He announces himself through a royal entrance, He announces himself through the fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy. But how does he fulfill the prophecy? Jesus fulfills the prophecy through his own prophetic utterance. Jesus fulfills the prophecy by through prof, a prophecy of his own. Do you see that? Listen, look at what it, look at how he does this. This is amazing. He says to two of his disciples, he says, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her." Now, that's some specificity, okay? You're going to find two donkeys. You're going to find an older donkey and a little donkey. They're going to be tied there, okay? Then he says, "Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. The other gospel accounts tell us someone did ask and they did say the Lord sent them and they were released. Y'all, that's amazing. That's amazing. Jesus fulfilled the word of God by speaking as God. Do you see that? Do you see that? Because here's what I think we think sometimes. What if, what if Jesus just read the Old Testament like really, really, really good and then just lived it out? Like, like, what if Jesus just read all the prophets? Like, what if Jesus just read Zechariah really, 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 really good and knew what everybody expected of the Messiah and maybe even some of what they didn't expect of the Messiah because he was smarter than they were and he read more than they did? And so, like, what if he just knew the prophecy so well that he, like, lived it out and he lived it out so that he could fool all of us into believing that he was really the Messiah? Well, first of all, you know what I would say? Would it surprise us that the Son of God would live in submission to the Word of God? Would that surprise us? That the Son of God would know what Zechariah chapter 9 would say about him and that he would submit himself to that and that he would live that out? But, God, but Jesus did not only, as the Son of God, submit himself to the Word of God, but Jesus, being God, spoke the Word of God by giving a prophetic utterance of himself, saying, Go, you're going to find the donkeys. It's going to be just like this. You're going to see a man. He's going to ask you, Hey, man, what you taking my donkeys for? You're going to tell him, The Lord sent, him, sent you. He's going to say, Okay, well, here, have some fries with that also. You're going to send you on the way with the donkey. Y'all, that's amazing. That's amazing. And do you know who can do that? Only the son of David can do that. Only the son of David can do that. Only the son of the living God can do that. Only the one who can actually redeem you from your sins can do that. Only the one through whom and for, by whom and for whom all things have been made can do that. Only the one who was there in the beginning can do that. Only he can tell you what will be before it actually is because he is the God that tells you the end from the beginning. But you know what I think the coolest part of it is? He allowed his disciples, his disciples to be used for the fulfillment of prophecy. What a great time to be alive, right? 
Like, what a great time in history to be alive. Can you imagine that Jesus says, hey, go into this town, do this, and I'm going to allow you to be a part of the fulfillment of a 500-year-old, five-year-old prophecy. Boom. Man, if I was the disciples, I would skip all the way to the donkey, you know? Like, no wonder they laid their cloak over it. They're like, we've been waiting 500 years for this, and we get to be a part of fulfilling it. That Jesus told them the way it was going to be. He supplied them once they got there. It happened exactly as he said it was going to happen, and then they get to be a part of it. Can you imagine being a part of the fulfillment of the prophetic word of God? Can I tell you something, brothers and sisters? That is the exact opportunity before you and I. That is the exact opportunity before you and I. Do you know why? Jesus isn't finished yet. Jesus isn't finished yet. Hear me say it. Jesus isn't finished yet. There's prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet. There are prophecies in the process of being fulfilled now. And Jesus is going to fulfill them how? Through his church. Through his people. People say that I want Jesus but not the church. No, you don't. Come on, man. What a great time in history to be alive. What a time to be alive. Because Jesus has told us what to do. He has told us how it will be. And he has provided and supplied everything that we will need along the way so that we get to take part in the fulfillment of prophecy. And do you know what we get in return? Treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven. We don't do anything except what he tells us to do. He supplies the power. He supplies the provision. And we get treasure for it. Let's think about some of the ways you get to be a part of the fulfillment of prophecy. Through your obedience. You know what the problem was with the people of God in the Old Testament? They were incapable of obedience. Incapable. But Jeremiah 31 says that I am going to write my law on the tablet of your heart. Isaiah, Ezekiel 36 says that I, through the Spirit, will put my Spirit in you and I will make you obedient to me. I will enable you to live out my law. I will enable you to walk with me and to fellowship with me and live in relationship with me. I will enable you to faithfulness. You get to live out and as often as you live out in faithful obedience in your walk with Christ, you are literally, literally living out the fulfillment of prophecy in your life. Not just obedience, perseverance. Perseverance. The, the people of God have always just fallen away, right? Like throughout the Old Testament, they're always backing down and falling away. And so Jesus says, I have come and I'm going to put you in my Father's hand and nothing is going to pluck you out. Romans chapter 8 says, what's going to separate you from the love of Jesus? Is trial, is death, is tribulation, is hardship, is sin, is fire, is famine, is sword. No, nothing will separate you. I have made you more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. As often as you persevere, as often as you press on, you are fulfilling the words of Jesus, the prophetic utterance of our Lord and Savior. You are living out before the world his great power, his great splendor. Evangelism. You know what the book of Revelation is wrought with? 
A church of many nations, a church of many colors, a church of many tribes and many tongues, a church that features every corner of our county and every corner of the globe. And you know how they're going to get there. God's going to use us. He's going to use us. He's going to use me and you. He's sending us into town after the donkey, and the donkey's going to be there. And if they ask you what what to say, you just say, Jesus told me to come. Jesus told me to come. Church, Jesus is in the process even today, even right now, of announcing to our community his grace and announcing to our community his mercy and announcing to our community his glory and announcing to our community his kindness and announcing to our community his salvation and announcing to our community his sovereignty and announcing to our community his splendor and announcing to our community his wonder. Oh, church, take part in it. Take part in it. Be a part of the fulfillment and the announcement of the King. But Jesus didn't just announce what he was and what he was to come to do. Jesus announced who he was. He defines himself by the things that he says, by the the way that he lays out this announcement for us in Matthew chapter 21. And the first thing that he shows us, us, defines himself to be, is he defines himself to be a sovereign king. A sovereign king. He says to them, he says, go and tell, if someone asks you a question, tell them that the Lord sent you. Do you know throughout the gospel of Matthew that the term, the term Lord in the Old Testament can mean, it could refer to a lot of different people, okay? It could refer to your master. It could refer to a slave owner. It could refer to a wise teacher, but not in the gospel of Matthew. In the gospel of Matthew, the word Lord exclusively, exclusively refers to God refers to God. So here's what Jesus was saying. If they want to know why they should send the donkey, you tell them that God needs it. You tell them that your sovereign king needs it for his work. He was making a claim on sovereignty. He's demonstrated his sovereignty as he told them how the circumstances would be exactly as they found them to be. You know, I find that living in America, we have difficulty with the concept of sovereignty. We live in a society that has a, a, three, uh, a three-tiered version of government, or a three-armed version of government, right? We have, even within that, a bicameral Congress, so there's not universal power or absolute authority by anyone. But if you go to Swaziland, you understand what absolute authority is. I told you earlier that King Maswati is the final absolute monarchy on the entire continent of Africa. And praise God for that. But being the absolute monarchy, you know what that means? That whatever he says, it happens. Whatever he says, it is just that way. That if he decides he wants something, somebody out of prison, he can have them released. If he wants someone in prison, he can have them placed there. If he wants someone executed, he can have them executed. That all of the property, he owns it. All of the cattle, he owns it. If he decides that he wants the economy to be shaped a certain way, he shapes it a certain way. If he wants the law to be a certain way, he makes it, he says it, and it becomes law. If he wants to change his mind and make it a new law, he changes his mind and makes a new law. That he has absolute sovereignty, and no one can overstep him. No one can overrule him. What he says goes. 
Brothers and sisters, do you understand that's who Jesus is? Do you understand that's who Jesus is? That when Jesus says it, even before it happens, you can write it down as fact because when Jesus says it, it will happen. That no matter what anyone else thinks, no matter what anyone else likes, no matter what anyone else loves, no matter what anyone else believes, what Jesus says will happen. No one can stop him. No one can overrule him. No one can overcome him. No one can overstep him. That Jesus is the one, as Philippians 2 said that we read this morning at the beginning of the service, he is the one before whom every king, every ruler, every power, every dominion will one day hit a knee and bow and proclaim as their Lord. And can I tell you something, brothers and sisters? That is my hope. That is my hope. That is the only hope that I have. And the last year and a half has been the hardest year and a half of my life. You guys know about what happened in Africa and the surgery and all of that. Came back, thought things were cool. Went on a 10 year anniversary trip with my wife, came back, stomach pain. Got over that, thought things were cool, went to Africa, came back, stomach pain. Started getting over that. My sister, brain tumor. Started kind of getting on the other side of that. For the last seven or eight weeks, I've had a headache every second of every day. Three injections, medicine, all of those things. I can't stop them. And you don't want to know what has gotten me through. Do you know why I can tell you with all of the integrity, not that there hasn't been dark moments, not that I haven't been angry sometimes, not that I haven't been frustrated sometimes, but do you want to know why I can tell you with everything inside of me and integrity that I am not discouraged because Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. And you know what? I believe that Jesus has given me a great vision. I believe that Jesus has told me what my life will be and where my life will go and what it will amount to. And so I can get through a headache. I can persevere through that because Jesus is sovereign. And you know what? If I'm wrong, if I've missed the vision, and I certainly am able of that, and if this is the last time that I ever preach in this church, and this is the last day that I kiss my little girls and my wife, do you want to know what gives me comfort? Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is sitting on the throne and he is ruling with a benevolent hand. He is ruling in kindness and grace and mercy and he has promised me all things are going to work together for my good and his promises can be taken to the bank. Brothers and sisters, you can smile in the middle of your darkness. You can have joy in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. You know why? Because we have hope together in the sovereignty of our risen Savior. But Jesus doesn't just show himself to be a sovereign king. He shows himself to be a humble king. A humble king. Humility and king go together like honesty and politician. Kings build statues of themselves, not of peasants, right? Kings show up in the middle and fluorescent turquoise BMWs while everybody else is driving black, right? Kings are the ones that the band and the trumpets announce. Kings are the ones that have little minions walk in front of them telling everybody how great they are, right? Not our king. 
Our king rides on the back of a donkey to ultimately go and to lay down his life. You see, they misunderstood who the king would be. They misunderstood who the Messiah would be. As clear as Jesus had made it, as clear as the picture was, they missed it. Because even though they understood Zechariah chapter 9 and the king riding in on the donkey, they didn't understand that Zechariah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 53 and the suffering servant would cross and would be the exact same man. They didn't understand that the king on the donkey would become a king on the cross. That as the sovereign king of glory, Jesus would declare war in this announcement. War on hell. War on death. War on sin. War on my hopelessness and your despair. War on everything broken and everything flipped upside down on this cursed world. And at the very same time as the sovereign king declared war, as the humble king, he would endeavor to lay down his own life. Zechariah chapter 9 says that this king will speak peace to the world and he would not come on a war horse and he would speak peace, but he would speak it from a cross as he would declare it is finished with his final breath. See, brothers and sisters, the question before you and I is the same question that faced the crowds that day. How will you respond to this king? How will you respond to this king? There were two responses there. The Galileans saw him, and they saw him not just as sovereign and not just, not just as humble, but they saw him as worthy. And as seeing him as worthy, they begin to sing out the Hallel Psalm of Psalm 118 and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. It was a psalm familiar to them during the Passover, which literally means save us, save us, glory to God in the highest, save us, save us. And they laid out their cloaks, the most expensive garment that they owned, owning probably only one. And they laid it before him as his donkey would trample over it in submission, saying, we pledge our allegiance to this king. And then there were the Judeans. Verse 10 says that it swept across, that it caused a stir in the city. The word literally means an earthquake. Who does this man think he is? As a king, he was a threat to Rome. As a prophet, he was a threat to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Neither would be able to tolerate him. Neither would be able to stand him. And in just five days, they would all shout and wash their hands and say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so, brothers, I bring before you the same king. I bring before you this same king and I ask you, how will you respond? Will you love him? Or will you reject him? Will you take off your cloak and lay it before him and submit yourself and surrender yourself? And I'm not asking you, you understand. I'm not asking you if you don't want to go to hell. I'm not asking you if you do want to go to heaven. I'm not asking you if you want good things in your life. I'm not asking you if you want to get married. I told you we're not a bait and switch kind of church. What I'm asking you is do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? 
Do you love him enough to bow down your life? Do you know him love him enough to surrender to your life? Do you love him enough to hand him over your checkbook? Do you love him enough to hand him over your calendar? Do you love him enough to say, Lord, here is my life. Whatever you want, wherever you want me to go, here it is. I will do it. I will go. Or is he a threat to your own sovereignty? Is he a threat to your own ambition? Is he a threat to your own self-rule? What will you do with this king? Do you love Christ? Let's pray together.